Uh, good morning, Three Rivers Church. I'm so glad that we're able to get together, and I'm so glad that we're able to open God's Word together. And I just want to say to you guys, I'm uh, exceptionally proud of how you are continuing to serve the Lord and continuing to serve each other. And just want to say to you guys, once again, uh, the Lord has put you together for this time. And so you guys are knocking it out of the park, and we're grateful for you. Uh, continue to do what you're doing. Looking forward to our time together this Wednesday in the webinar where we talk about what it looks like to begin to move forward and uh, begin to have the opportunity to gather together again. Today we're going to continue looking and studying in the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 45, verse 16, and we're going to go through chapter 46, verse 34. And today we're going to be talking about this central big idea that the text gives us, and that is that the Lord, God, keeps His Word in preserving his people. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to get after it. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would cause your word to be a lamp for our feet and light for our path, that you would teach us who you are, who we are, and what we're to do with it, and help us to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we come to this passage, Genesis chapter 45, verse 16, through 46.34, one passage comes to mind that's very important. And it's Genesis 15, verse 13 to 21. Because if we're talking about God keeping His Word and preserving His people, we have to think back to when the Lord gave a promise to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 to 21, God tells at that time Abram what he's going to do. In fact, the Lord says, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And the beautiful, there's lots of beautiful things in this passage, but one of the most beautiful things is it is God himself who makes this covenant. God himself who takes it upon himself to make it and to keep it and to provide the sacrifice for it. And it is by God himself that it will be kept. Not by Abraham, not by his works, but by God alone. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you. But here's the deal, Abraham. I'm going to send you down to Egypt for a while and it's going to be a long time. And your people are going to be enslaved and you're going to suffer and it's going to be difficult. And his reason is because he wants to be faithful to his character and nature and being patient with some Amorite folks in the land of Canaan that he wants to give the opportunity to turn from their sin and turn to him. But he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to preserve you. And so God makes a promise. And when we come to this passage today, we see God fulfilling His Word to Abraham that He is going to preserve him and make him a great nation, but it's going to be difficult. So we see here in this passage that God is faithful to keep His Word and that He keeps His Word in preserving His people. So here's what I would like for you to do. Take a moment in your family unit or in your group of 10 and under and read the passage together. And after you read it, we're going to ask our, th our key questions in studying the passage. Okay, you guys have read the passage. So we want to ask our three key questions. And those questions are this. Number one, what does the text say? And in answering that question, we simply want to know what the narrative says. We want to know the story and how it fits. The second key question we want to ask is this. What does the text teach us about God and what does the text teach us about man? And then our third key question is what 
are we supposed to do with the passage? How do we apply it? And in application, we, we say, what do we need to know? What do we need to believe? And what do we need to do? So let's start with the first key question, and that is, what does our passage say? When we come to Genesis 45, verse 16, through chapter 46, all the way down to the end of the chapter, we begin in verse 16 by remembering that Joseph has been reconciled to his brothers. They know who he is, and they recognize that God has kept his word to Joseph. And the good news of this story has reached Pharaoh, and it's reached him fairly quickly. And Pharaoh is excited for Joseph. And Pharaoh tells Joseph, here's what you're supposed to do. I'm going to give you all these supplies, and you're going to go up and send your brothers back and get your father and everybody and everything, and you are to come down to Egypt. And he tells him, you can have the best of the land to dwell in. And then so Joseph goes, according to Pharaoh's command to his brothers, and he says to them, Pharaoh's excited. And we're going to be faithful to do what God has given us to do. So we're going to send all these supplies back with you. And you're to go get dad. And you're going to get the whole family. Get your wives. Get your children. Bring the cattle. Bring everything down to Egypt. He blesses them with supplies for the journey and transportation for father and all of those good things. And they are to come back down to Egypt. He gives Benjamin a little more than he gives everyone else. But he sends them all up with abundant supply, and tells them to come back. And then he gives them this important command. He tells them, do not argue on the way. Do not argue on the way. It's something I'd like for you guys to sound out a little bit. As Joseph points us to Jesus and who he is and what he does, think in your groups, think in your family unit a little bit. We're not going to unpack it right here. How Joseph puts a value of this kingdom that God has given him in ruling over his family into play of peace and righteousness in his family. He says, in this family unit, we're not going to cast blame. Do not argue as you go up. Because I would imagine these brothers are thinking to themselves, God, it's your fault. It's your fault. You said this. You said that. You said we should. You said we shouldn't. And Joseph says, that's not how we're going to operate in my family. Go back, get dad, get everybody, come down, and do not argue on the way. So you guys sound out maybe a thread of the kingdom of God as Joseph puts in play this command that they are to be at peace. So they go up, and they have to have that conversation with Jacob. And they tell him, Dad... Joseph's alive. Now, the text doesn't tell us the details of that conversation. It just tells us that they had that conversation. And in fact, it does tell us that when Jacob hears this, he is literally numb. He can't feel. And it tells us the reason is because he didn't believe them. We recognize that Jacob has probably suspected them all along because he was hesitant to send Benjamin back with them in the first place. And Judah had to become a pledge in order for Jacob to trust them to send Benjamin down. But He doesn't trust them. He doesn't believe what they've said. And we recognize in this passage that sin has consequences. We recognize that their sin has now affected how Jacob comes at them and treats them. He simply doesn't believe them. So we recognize the wages, the consequences of sin is death. Sin never does anybody any good. But Jacob sees the evidence. He sees all of the supplies. He sees all of the camels, all of the wagons. And he says, this must be true. And he believes and he is excited. And he says, this is fantastic. Joseph is alive. Let's go down and see him. So they start out on the journey. In verse 
1 of chapter 46 tells us, So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Man, we recognize something astounding here. They start out on their journey, but he intentionally comes to Beersheba. And this is an important place. It's a place where his grandfather Abraham worshiped the Lord, where God revealed himself to Abraham. It's also the place where his father Isaac worshiped the Lord. And they take the time to stop in Beersheba and worship the Lord. And we read in the passage that after he worships the Lord, the Lord reveals himself to him, calls him by name. And Jacob responds that he is here, he's his servant. God lets him know he's going to send him down. He's going to still make him a great nation and that he is going to go with him and be with him. And after this happens, they gather up everything from Beersheba and they take off to Egypt. And then we get to the point in the passage where Moses, remember Moses is writing this for his people as they are coming out of Egyptian slavery. And he is reminding them who they are and where they have come from and teaching them the truth about who God is. And he gives them this lengthy genealogy, which is a family tree. Now it's tempting for us as we read genealogies in the Bible to kind of skip over them because they're super sometimes not interesting. But what I want you to do as you read this passage is recognize that genealogies are also part of God's Word. They're inspired. The Holy Spirit gave them, and He gave them for a purpose. And one of the ways we discover the purpose of the genealogy is to ask some questions about it. So don't skip the genealogy. So as you're gathered together, these are some questions you can ask to make sense of the genealogy. Now, I'm not going to answer them for you. Because this would be really too long, but this is good discussion that you can have over the uh, the lunch table, the dinner table, and throughout the week. And here are those questions to help us get at the intention of the genealogy. Ask these questions. First, ask, how does this genealogy fit within the author's intention in the narrative? What's Moses' intention? What's he trying to do? What does he want to communicate to his people? The second question you can ask is, how does this fulfill God's promises? Because God has made a promise to Abraham. Heck, he made the promise to Adam and Eve that he was going to bring one from them who would break the curse. So how does this genealogy help us to see that God has fulfilled his promises? And the third question to ask of a genealogy is, what are some of the shadows of grace? What are some of the tributaries of the gospel that we can begin to see in this genealogy? So don't skip over it. Read it and ask those key questions. And then finally, we come to the part of the passage where Jacob arrives in Egypt. He sends Judah ahead of him to prepare the way. Total opportunity for you guys to study in your group the gospel tributary here. I'm not going to give it to you. And as a side note and a quick rabbit trail, I want to say this to you. You people, the people of God, the saints of the Lord, members of Three Rivers Church, you have the Holy Spirit, you have God's Word, and the very person of Jesus Christ Himself given to you as families and as small groups. And I believe that as you study God's word, he can give you insight and he will give you insight into these things. So look at what God is saying to us in Judah being sent before to prepare the way 
for Jacob the father to come and be reunited with his son. There's some beautiful gospel tributary there for you to sound out together. And I believe the Holy Spirit will give you insight into that because there's going to be one who comes from the line of Judah who will go before the father and make a way for the reconciliation and the reuniting of father and son. And so sound that out a little bit as you study. So we come to the end of our passage, and that's what the passage says. So now we want to look at our second key question. What does this passage teach us about God and about man? Confession. I have nine observations. I'm only going to have time to probably give you five, but what I'll do is I'll post them all in the notes section on my blog so that you can go down there and see those other things and talk about them together. So there are nine. I'm only going to give you five. What does the passage teach us about God and man? Well, number one, we said this at the beginning. It's kind of our title. It's kind of the big idea. We learn here that God has kept his word. God's kept his word. He has been faithful to keep his promise central to Christianity is this idea of God's Word. That God has spoken. God's a communicating God. He speaks and He wants His people to hear, understand, and obey. God has spoken to Abraham and He's given him a promise. And He's told him exactly what's going to happen. God wasn't general. He was very specific. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. But there's going to be some things that are going to have to happen because I'm going to be patient with people who are sinners because I want them to repent and believe. I want the curse crushed in them so they can be reconciled back to me. So what I'm going to do is pay for that patience with you being enslaved for 400 years. But I'm still going to make you a great nation. You're going to be sent down to Egypt. And we see in this passage that God has been faithful to prepare Joseph to send him to Egypt to prepare a way for God to preserve his people and keep his word to Abraham. The New Testament authors go to great pains to show us when they say things like, this was done to fulfill what the scriptures spoke. God is careful to fulfill His Word. So God has kept His Word to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In fact, in Genesis chapter 46, we see here that God is fully and completely in detail keeping His Word. In fact, Jacob has prayed a prayer earlier in Genesis when he was sending his sons off to go back down to Egypt for food that God, would you be merciful and gracious? Would you watch out for us and take care of us? And God has been faithful to absolutely 100% answer that prayer and keep his word because God was merciful in providing and he was gracious in showing Jacob that he had preserved his son. In God keeping his word, there's a preciousness to it and there's also a difficulty to it in this providence. It's precious because God keeps his word. This precious reality that God will watch over to keep His Word is glorious for us and it anchors our soul down into good things that God will be faithful. But there's also a difficulty to this providence and it's difficult in that God's plan is going to involve a measure of suffering on the part of His people 
so that some others may be saved. And there is even in that a beautiful gospel tributary that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, would suffer as Joseph points us to in his life that he would suffer so that God can be patient with sinners. And this shows us not only a gospel tributary, but it also shows us some of the way we can expect to live life. Because we are followers of Jesus who took suffering so that we can be saved, we also have to recognize that sometimes in God's plan, not only is there the precious promise that God keeps His word, but there is the difficult side of that providence that it may at times include difficulty. And what this does for us is help us to see that when difficulty comes, our anchor cannot be dislodged because that anchor is sunk deep into the truth that God keeps His Word so that when difficulties come, that anchor holds us, that we're not just at the whim of difficulty, that we're not just being blown about and tossed about in the wind of difficulty, but because God keeps His Word, when difficulty comes, we recognize we're walking in the path of Jesus who has secured our way in front of us because God keeps His Word. We also learn in this passage that Jacob and his family are brought into the land of Egypt to be provided for by no provision of their own. It was all of God. And here's another gospel tributary. Pharaoh, through Joseph, sent every necessary provision for them to get from where they were down to where they needed to be. It was not of their own doing. It was the gift of God, not a result of works, so that Jacob could never boast. It was the Lord who sent Joseph ahead. It was the Lord who put Joseph in Pharaoh's house. It was the Lord God himself who supplied through Pharaoh everything. So that we see in this passage that it was God who made the provision. And there is no way Jacob could ever lift his hands and say, I did this. So we see that it was by no provision of their own. We see here something about the nature of God that's beautiful and precious. And that is, next, God is merciful and gracious. I've alluded to this already. When in Genesis 43, verse 14, Jacob is sending his sons back down to Egypt. And he has already been bereaved of Joseph, as he thinks. And he doesn't want Benjamin to disappear too. And he's got another son down there being held captive so that there's insurance policy that those guys are going to come back. And Jacob prays for mercy. In fact, he prays in Genesis 43, verse 14. He says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. The Lord showed mercy through Joseph by causing Joseph to be merciful to his brothers and not seek vengeance. We see that the Lord shows grace and generosity and kindness by giving Jacob more than mercy, gave him his son back. And we learn that God is merciful and gracious. That God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And this is huge. Next, we learn about God and about man that Jacob responds to God's kindness in, by, and through worship. God is kind through Pharaoh and Joseph to provide everything he needs. And how does Jacob respond? On his way, they intentionally stop in the place where the Lord revealed himself to his grandfather and to his dad, and they stop and they worship. We find here in this passage that worship is the right response to God. Next thing we learn about the Lord in this passage is that God reveals himself as near 
personal, and on mission. We find that God is near. God is personal, and He is on mission. As Jacob worships the Lord, God speaks to him. He calls him by name. He can hear him. He's near. And God has a mission to accomplish. He stated to Abraham all the way back, as we mentioned earlier, that there's a point and a purpose. In fact, from Genesis 3.15 to Genesis 12.1-3 to this passage, God's on point. He said there's going to come one who's going to crush and destroy sin. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and bless all the families of the earth. And here I'm going to send you down there because I intend to be gracious and merciful to people in the earth. And I'm going to make you a great nation and send you to Canaan so that you can bless the earth with this good news of Jesus Christ and His kingdom. So God is near. He's not absent. He's personal. And He is absolutely on mission. So, how do we apply these truths to our lives today? How do we apply this passage? What do we need to believe? What do we need to know? And what do we need to do? Well, number one, we need to believe that God has, does, and will keep His Word. As I've said earlier and said already, I want to repeat, God's Word is central to our faith. In fact, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to do a series on the Bible, the Scriptures, God's Word. God's Word to His people is central to our faith. And we need to believe. We need to believe this because our beliefs aren't just ideas in our head. Biblically, belief is connected to emotion and willful action. Because when we believe, we act. When we believe, we feel right appropriately. And so we need to believe that God has, does, and will keep His Word. God's been faithful. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that God did all of these things and He was faithful and they've been written down in the book of Romans. We're told they were written down for our instruction so that through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we believe God has kept His Word. We believe He currently does keep His Word to us and we believe in the future He will continue to keep His Word. And again, that anchors our soul deep. God speaks, God decrees, He promises, and He acts in history to keep His Word. I'm continually blown away by the truth that the New Testament goes to pains to remind us this happened so that God's Word would be fulfilled. What a glorious thing that God has woven together events in history so that He would keep His Word. You know what? That means for us there will be nothing, there will be no expense spared for God to keep His Word to us. He is merciful and gracious to us and He will keep His Word. And that truth keeps us anchored in our faith. So we need to believe that because when we believe that, that will begin to affect how we feel about our current circumstance, our current situation. It helps us sometimes to get out of our feelings that may not be right and appropriate and get into a place that fits with trusting God and walking with Him in deep trust and in deep faith. So believe God has, does, and will keep His word. Secondly, we need to know, we need to know this truth that Jacob, Moses, that David, that you and me, we are saved from the curse of sin by God's work, not ours. When we truly know this, 
that we are rescued from the curse of sin by God's work and not ours, this causes us to rest in our trust in the Lord and rest from this idea that somehow I have to please God to get God to like me, to love me, and even save me. In Christ Jesus, He has paid the price. He's spared no expense. And He has done everything necessary to rescue us by no work or effort of our own. We don't have to earn it, and we don't have to keep it. We don't have to maintain it. It is a gift of grace. Now that works itself out in certain behaviors. But when we recognize in this passage this truth that Jacob did nothing to get to Egypt and provide for the way, we see that gospel tributary that we do not have to earn our way into God's favor. Jesus purchased every good thing. He purchased every bad thing that God turns for good. He bought it all by no effort of our own. So rest in that glorious truth. Third, we are to believe that God is good, God is merciful, and God is gracious and kind to us. Often, I am tempted to disbelieve that truth. Part of the temptation of Israel and us is to become distracted by life circumstances. And this distraction can cause you, it can cause me, it can call, cause others to develop a theology of God that is not from Scripture, but a theology that is developed through circumstance. And this is another reason our belief in God's Word is central. Because our theology does not rise, and theology simply means the study of God, right? And all of us are theologians, and we're either good ones or we're sloppy ones, right? There's no such thing as a person who's not a theologian. If we have a thought about God, it makes us the theologian. We have a word, we have a thought about God. So the question is, are we good ones or are we sloppy ones? And if we let life circumstances dictate our theology, we're going to be sloppy theologians, and so this is why God's Word is central, because our theology comes from and needs to come from God's Word. And part of our temptation, it's part of Israel's temptation, and we'll see that throughout the Old Testament, where they were tempted to gain their theology from false gods that were dictated by the circumstances of weather and having children in the land of Canaan, and it absolutely caused them to get off the rails of their faith. And so we need to believe that God is good, merciful, gracious, and kind to us because the temptation is to let circumstances teach us something that might not be true. Because in the middle of this difficult circumstance we find ourselves in, we're isolated from each other. In some cases, we're isolated from dear family members. In some cases, we're isolated, in all of our cases, we're isolated from our covenant fellowship. Perhaps you've lost someone. Perhaps you've had to bury someone in the middle of this difficult circumstance. Perhaps uh, you're having to walk through the loss of a job. Perhaps you're having to walk through some of the most difficult of life circumstances. And if we let those circumstances begin to say to us, God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me. He's not gracious to me. and He's not kind to me. We begin to get off the rails of the truth. And when we study these passages, it's sort of a, a God corrective that brings us back to this place where we recognize circumstances are not what teach me about God. God's Word teaches me about God. And so we need to believe from this passage, God is good. Because remember, He told Abraham, look, 
I'm going to do this thing in which your people are going to be enslaved for a long time because I'm going to be gracious to sinners. But that doesn't change the fact that I love you. In fact, I love you so much. I believe that I'm going to preserve you through this. And you're going to believe that I'm going to preserve you through this. And I am going to preserve you through this because I'm going to be gracious to sinners. Hey, listen to this. You never know. I never know what God is doing in the hearts of other people when they see us suffer well and maintain our belief that God is merciful, gracious, kind, and good. In fact, I would I would say that those actions on our part prop up the words we preach when we say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When they look at our lives and say, man, these people really believe that. Man, they operate on a different level. There is proof that what we say is true. So believe that God is good, merciful, gracious, and kind regardless of the circumstance. Now, we're missing graduation this year. Little did we think when we had Gabriel Jolly, June... 2001, that we were going to have September 11th, 2001. And little did we know that here we are in May of 2020, and that kid who was born and lived through and whose life was shaped by a post-9-11 world is going to have a post-graduation world of a pandemic. And it's easy to look at the loss of graduation and graduation parties and all the fun times that seniors get to have in May as they prepare for graduation as something uh, that is to be mourned. And, and it is to be mourned. And we are mourning in our house. It's a sad thing. But if we let that mourning and that difficulty dictate to us things about God that aren't true, we fail. And what we have to do is walk through that mourning faithfully and trust that even in that mourning, that God is still being good, gracious, and kind because His ends are far beyond what we can imagine. And we anchor our hope in that because God's Word tells us He is working good for us. And that helps us to maintain the proper mentality as we walk through. So Three Rivers believe God is good, believe He is merciful and gracious and kind to us. Fourth, we believe and we need to know that God is near he is personal, and He is on mission. This is similar to number three, but I wanted to state it distinctly because part of the temptation when we walk through difficult times is to think God has abandoned me. He is absent, and maybe He's forgotten about me. Maybe He doesn't know my name because He certainly doesn't seem to be paying a lot of attention to me in my circumstance. And has God forgot what He promised to do? The answer to those questions is no, God is near. He's personal. He knows us by name. And he hasn't forgotten the mission either. You see, God showed Jacob here that he knew who he was. I love in the passage when we learn in chapter 46, verse 1 through 4, that when Jacob stopped to worship, the Lord called his name twice. Hey, Jacob. Hey, Jacob. And he let him know, I know who you are. And then he told him, I'm still going to make you a great nation. I made you a promise. I'm going to keep it. And then he told him this beautiful thing. I'm going to be with you. He didn't abandon him. When they went down to Egypt, God didn't leave them. He was near to them. So just because things are difficult doesn't mean that God isn't near and He isn't personal and He's not on mission. In fact, their difficulty and their time in Egypt had a gospel mission. You go read the book of Exodus and we get the Passover from Exodus from which Jesus took the Lord's Supper. God was weaving the gospel into history and bread and wine. He was on mission. He was on point. And today in this pandemic, guess what? He's still on mission. 
He's still on point. He's still building his church. The question for us is, will we hear? Will we listen? Will we respond? Will we move forward with the Lord? Right? But he's still near and he's still personal at the individual level and at the corporate level. So fear not. God is near personal and he is on mission. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this point is in the book, The Horse and His Boy, in the series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. We see a beautiful picture about the nearness, the personal nature, and the mission of the Lord. As I don't want to ruin it for you, but one of the characters in this book continually has the presence of a cat and a lion And this lion appears to be chasing it sometimes and creating fear and causing him to do things that he didn't want to do. And finally, at a point of desperation, this lion is once again on his tail. and He doesn't know what to do and he finally calls out. It's Aslan. And Aslan said, I've been waiting for you to talk to me. Aslan, from the time all the way back who comforted him in the night, at one point to the moments he created fear in the horses, and to the moments he pushed him to the right place at the right time, to the right mountain pass so that he could get where he needed, when he needed to get there. Shasta cries out and Aslan said, I've been waiting for you to talk to me. That book absolutely pillages my soul, wrecks it in a good way, because Lewis captured so beautifully for us in the relationship of Aslan to Shasta, how God works with Jacob here. There was never a moment where Aslan wasn't present. There was never a moment where Aslan wasn't on mission. He was making sure Shasta got where he needed, when he needed to get there. And there's never a moment Aslan wasn't personal. And the truth of the matter is, that's a story that was written to lift our eyes to look up to Jesus. There's never a moment that God isn't near and personal and on mission with us. And finally, here's our last application Worship is the correct, and I said the, capital V, capital T, capital H, capital E. Worship is the correct response to God in Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to Jacob. Jacob worships in response. Worship tunes our hearts to feel the truth of what God says in his word. So I say to us, if we're struggling to feel these truths about God, Worship Him. And here's what worship is. Worship is recounting back to God, not just His works. There's actually a technical term for that. It's called the gospel song. But a hymn, a worship song, states truths about God. And when we sing those truths about God, there's something God has done in wiring song to connect to our hearts that causes our hearts to feel those truths we recount back to God. So as we worship Him and we sing those truths back to Him, it's like the song, Come Thou Fount, we're asking, tune my heart to sing your praise. When we sing truths back to God, there's something about the Holy Spirit's work in those gospel theological truths that tune our heart to the right frequency and keep us where we need to be. So worship is the right response. So Three Rivers and anyone watching this, I want to encourage you, join us in the worship of the Lord God, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you've never turned to Jesus by faith, I invite you to do that now. Simply turn from sin, believe on the Lord Jesus, and Romans 10 promises us you will be saved. 
And if that's you, you can shoot me an email at the email address below, and I'd love to have more conversation with you on how you can continue to follow Jesus at this point. So Three Rivers and others joining by this video, worship with us. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would move and tune our hearts to sing your praise. We ask that you would overcome uncomfortable barriers that we're not used to and being in our homes and small groups and not being gathered in our central location, overcome those and cause us to enjoy you and worship and then cause us to believe all the things we need to believe and think and feel all the things we need to feel and do all the things you've given us to do. Take your word and accomplish all these things, we pray in Jesus' name.